Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. Today's guest is Ryan Clements, a lawyer, entrepreneur, author, and assistant professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. Ryan received his LLB with distinction from the University of Alberta, as well as his Master's of Laws and Doctorate of Juridical Science from Duke University Law School. As is likely obvious from his resume, Ryan possesses a degree or two of intellectual horsepower, and in our wide-ranging conversation, we cover what attracted Ryan to law in the first place, and what influenced his trajectory from big firm lawyer to entrepreneur and now into academia, how a law degree is like owning a Swiss army knife that can be used in numerous settings both within and outside of a law firm setting, why it is critical to become an expert in your chosen area to achieve professional success, and Ryan also gives a fantastic blueprint for law students and young lawyers who are trying to sort out their career path that, frankly, I wish I had when I was going through law school. I had the pleasure of taking Ryan's course on startup law during my time in law school, and to say he has had an influence on my career would be an understatement. If you're currently attending the University of Calgary Law School and have an opportunity to take one of Ryan's classes, I promise you, you won't regret it no matter what he is teaching. If you want to hear more from Ryan, you can follow him on LinkedIn or Twitter, or better yet, sign up today for the Good Lawyer Summit taking place on November 3rd and 4th, where Ryan will be gracing the stage as a member of our legal tech panel. The Good Lawyer Summit is a hybrid virtual and in-person event that will empower entrepreneurs and startups to level up their business while bringing together some of the brightest minds in law to reimagine a future where legal work is seen as a catalyst and not an obstacle. It is shaping up to be an amazing event, so make sure you reserve your free but limited tickets today. Links to the event as well as ways to follow Ryan, as always, in the show notes. All right, that is it for me. I hope you enjoy today's discussion with Ryan Clements. Ryan, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, I've been trying to get you on this podcast for a while now. You're a busy man doing a lot of things, <laughs> which we'll get into here. I think just to, to start off, maybe just introduce yourself. You have a pretty interesting story, but just what made you get into law in the first place? Maybe a bit about your academic journey and then obviously your journey into the big law world and, and experience sure. there as well. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law, also the chair in business law and regulation here. So my journey into law wasn't maybe as direct as other people's in that it wasn't necessarily something that I wanted from a really early age. I didn't have any family members who were lawyers. You know, my family comes from farming background. And so I was one of the first people in my family to even have a degree, let alone a law degree. I was interested as a kid and, and I guess just some additional context. So at the U of C, I teach securities law. I teach uh, a unique class in fintech law, which I developed, and I also teach property law. My research 
is primarily in financial innovation, fintech and financial product innovation. I hold degrees in law from the U of A and master's law from Duke and also a doctorate from Duke where I focused on financial innovation and fintech. So when I was really young, when I was first started thinking about careers and what was I going to be when I grew, when I grew up, I was really attracted to financial markets. I remember as a little kid, you know, this is pre-internet and even pre-CNBC laying out the newspaper on the table when I was literally like a little nerdy little kid. And I was just fascinated by the stock tables. And I used to watch things and move up. And we had this game when I was a kid called Stock Ticker that me and my brothers would play. And, and I was quite interested in that world. I think because it was fundamentally different to what I was growing up in. <laughs> like there couldn't be anything more different because I grew up on a farm. There couldn't be anything more different to what I was literally growing up in than financial markets. So I went to U of A as an undergraduate, I did economics. And then, you know, I think everyone kind of has this in their career path where you have some general ideas of interest and you start heading down a path and then you start seeing other things and you're like, well, that seems kind of cool too. How, how do I do that? I found myself having a whole bunch of those things. I found myself quite interested in academics early on as an econ student. And it was mostly due to some kind of two main influences. One was actually a professor, not in the econ faculty, but in the political science faculty, who I took a class from, and it was called the history of political thought. And without even knowing, he was introducing me to the Socratic method. And I was mesmerized by this professor's ability to engage all of us and make quite esoteric texts come alive and have us really wrestle with things without being contentious. I was fascinated by his ability to do that. And I remember thinking, that's something that I would maybe like to do, to be able to speak like him and kind of command an audience like him. But I was still really interested in, in financial markets as well. While I was an econ student, I also got a job doing research for a stockbroker at BMO Nesbitt Burns. And so I was spending, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week reading prospectus. And this is 2002, 2003. So exchange traded funds were just kind of getting going. Structure products were kind of getting going at this time. You know, they were created earlier in this, but they were becoming a lot more popular. So I was spending most of my time pulling things from CEDAR, reading prospectus, <laughs> learning about how derivatives work. I did my Canadian securities course as an undergraduate student, did my derivatives fundamentals course, did my derivatives trading license while I was an undergraduate student, learning about how all these products were structured. And I'm like, that's really cool too. So I'm like, academics is kind of cool. I'd like to maybe see how this sausage is made and where do I go to do that? You know, Toronto or New York. And so these little things, these little kind of seeds, these seeds of being an academic, the seeds of big finance. But then at the same time, there was an, some entrepreneurial and small business seeds that were happening. My two brothers and I were involved with a startup of our own that, that ended up being fairly successful while I was an undergraduate and a technology company. And so I had all these like influences and what I thought I was going to do for graduate school. And what I initially applied to was PhD track in economics. And I got accepted into several PhD programs. I got a job offer from the bank of Canada and they were going to facilitate me to be able to do my master's and my PhD 
And I was talking to a friend, a mentor who said, you might want to think about law because all of the things that you're talking about, all the things that you seem interested in, you can actually do all of that potentially from yeah. academics to financial markets to entrepreneurialism. And I didn't even really see it that way because it wasn't linear to me. And I think that this is a kind of a problem. It's opaque to a lot of students. They don't see like the breadth of what they can do. And even with law, they, they see law as this like kind of like narrow thing. Like, okay, I go into this firm and, and then I maybe become a partner. And if I don't become that, then I don't know what it is. And they don't realize the breadth of what it actually is. And so that was probably the, some of the best advice I ever got because I've been very happy with my career. And, you know, I didn't even apply. I applied to one law school. It was U of A. Like I, I wrote the LSAT kind of on a whim, like, all right, what are we going to need to go to law school? It's already accepted in some PhD programs. I'm like, oh, you got to write this LSAT. I applied like way late only applied to U of A. We owned that place there because I did my undergraduate U of A and I thought, you know what, I'll stay here. And, and there's another element to this too, to, to be perfectly honest. I like the idea of having something, kind of this profession idea of like, well, at least I have this. I, I had my first child as an undergraduate student. You know, I got married, we had a kid. There was this kind of worry about like having something, like having some type of insurance policy on my life that law seemed interesting to me, but I still had all these kind of seeds like academic seed and I, financial market and entrepreneurialism, that was all there. And so law seemed like a way to kind of do it all. And in, in a fun way, I look back over the last, so I graduated from U of A in 2007. I look back over the last... 14 years. And I'm like, I kind of been able to do everything I wanted to do. It's been kind of cool to do that. And Amazing. so I'm, re I'm really grateful for that advice to look at law as this robust experience that will allow you to do a lot of different things. Well, that was a great description because you know? you're right. I think a lot of people do have that sort of narrow focus about what mm. it means to be a lawyer. And I know you're itching to jump in here. So no, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds not so dissimilar i mean very unique but not so dissimilar from matt and mine own sort of experiences going to law without lawyers in the family kind of wanting that security blanket so to speak feeling like yeah. it's a productive next step i think frankly for myself at least i was even less sort of articulate about why i was going to law than you were i actually grew up yeah. with a, a stockbroker dad and, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe just going back to that for a second. Yeah. You know, if you're on the farm and you're pulling out the newspaper, like what yeah, triggered childhood you, activities? What triggered well, you? I have no idea. You know, sometimes I joke that I'm an alien when it comes to my family because like all my preferences were being formed from some strange programming that that wasn't necessarily around. Now I'm super grateful for how I was raised and I've got wonderful parents. Like I was taught fantastic work ethic and all these great things, but my interests were coming out of complete left field. I don't know what it was, to be honest with you. It just seemed to be mesmerizing to me. I wasn't even aware of what it was even. And I distinctly remember the house that we were living in when I laid down the newspaper and I thought, what in the world is this? You know, <laughs> what does this even mean? What are these on the y-axis? What are these companies? Like, what is this? You know, <laughs> and talking to my dad a little bit about it and, and then just kind of informing this seed about 
I kind of want to learn what this is, what this world is. And, and I can remember also as a kid driving, because I grew up in Southern Alberta, coming to Calgary and being in the backseat of the car while my parents were driving and looking at stores and going, oh, those are interesting. I wonder who owns these things. And just having this sense of like these little businesses and what's involved in these things and wanting to understand the ecosystem behind it was intriguing to me. And I don't know why. It just was. And part of what I've always advocated for, and I've always done, frankly, in my life, if something's interesting to me, I follow it. (laughs) Sometimes you get to the end of that interest and you're like, okay, you know, and you start following something else. But there's been a pretty consistent interest for me, say, ever since I was a kid that I followed and my whole law career kind of reflects this in finance, entrepreneurialism, Mm -hmm. technology, innovation, all of those things have been long-term interests uh, for me. And they've seen their way through undergrad, law school, various different practice settings, grad school, and now what I teach and, and the extracurricular stuff that I do right now, because in addition to teaching. I serve on several boards. I, I sit on a committee at the Securities Commission. I sit on a working group at IROC. Everything that, that I am involved in kind of goes back to these like really early interests. And I don't really know where they came from. Amazing. Love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's so funny now that, you know, we're living in this world where the financial markets mm-hmm. are in a state of flux. We yeah. have all of these new financial products that seem like they couldn't have come at a better time given your background and the fact that blockchain is just like blowing up in my mind right now. Yeah. They, they don't have rules and you need to sort of understand both the legal context in which, you know, society is placed right now, but also like these financial sort of fundamentals that got us to where we are. So it does seem like a very serendipitous background for, the world we're living in today. Mm-hmm. So after you graduated from law school, I, I think you have a really interesting take because you got hired to uh, a dream job in Toronto. You, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, you were hired by Davies <laughs> and you worked there for a few years. I remember this story you told back in class where it was something like you did a, an entire deal by yourself and a partner came in at, when you had laid out all the documents and there, the client was coming in for closing and everything got signed. He didn't even mention you. And yeah. it seemed like that might have been a pivotal point for your direction with that law firm. But maybe just tell the story about how all that came So out. just to be clear, so Davies, that experience happened at the next firm that I lateral oh, over to, for, for the, but still a sister firm. And so just some context on big law for me. So I really wanted to go to big law because I had been working in undergrad doing all this research as an assistant, research assistant to a stockbroker on, on structured products. And so I came into a law school at U of A wanting literally to not just do securities, but to do like structured finance. And I remember speaking to some of my mentors at the U of A and I'm saying, you know what, you need to go to Toronto to, to do the Toronto or New York. And so that's where my mind was, was set really early on at U of A was going to Toronto, did the OCIs, summer to Davies, went back, article Davies. I, I had a wonderful experience there. I worked with some incredible people. I learned some uh, fantastic skill sets and habits and rigor. And frankly, if I was to do it again, I would still want to follow that same path. 
My son, however, my second son, so I have a daughter who's now heading off to university um, in three weeks. My second son, 15, was born when I was a two-well summer student, and he has special needs. And so being out there, it, it was a real kind of internal conflict for me because I was working on some really interesting things. It was also right at the financial crisis. So I, I start articling, which really informed my graduate study, I've done a lot of work, and I've written a lot about systemic risk and comparing financial products now to what happened in 2008. Well, I articled wanting to do structured finance and derivatives on Bay Street starting in September 2007. That's oh. when I started to the fall, to the spring of 2008. That's when I articled. So the world that I was wanting to enter into as a profession blew up completely. <laughs> and at the exact same time, I have a special needs son, brand new newborn, requiring some unique help and me working a lot of hours requiring some more support. So those two factors really influenced me coming back to Calgary, where I lateraled over to another large firm. And that firm was great too, but it just wasn't right for me because my heart was actually in structured finance and more mm. Toronto style, New York style, London style finance. I found myself lateraled over into big law and I was doing oil and gas M&A. And that wasn't what I wanted out of law school. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. It just wasn't what I had chosen for. And so because of the family dynamics and the fact that no one got hired in structured finance, in, you know, <laughs> in the summer of 2008, if I was to stay at Davies, I would have had to been in just probably M&A. Or I also did a rotation in tax, but those two areas weren't really resonating with me. I came back to Calgary at another major firm. The firm was great. People were there were great. It was just more me. It's not where my heart really was. I didn't really want to be doing M&A in oil and gas. And so this is where I started getting into some kind of internal conflicts. And this opened up this opportunity for me. A friend of mine was having a similar experience at another large firm. And we came together and kind of said, are you really happy? And I said, no, I'm not really happy either. Let's go buy out this solicitor. He's interested. We've got this great little startup business. He advises a whole bunch of companies. It's 200 minute books. And, and he's got these other kind of solicitor type business. Let's just see what we can do with it. And the idea it was actually quite sporadic looking back at it. And I'm, I'm not usually that type of a person. <laughs> I, I'm usually quite like a very deliberate and let's make a very long checklist of the cost benefits of everything and build out a spreadsheet. That's like what my default personality was. I found myself in uh, 2009, 2010, being willing to take a risk and try something different because the real interest when it came to finance and financial markets was more New York, Toronto style, right. London style work. My family dynamic made it hard to be out there. Mm -hmm. And so I was here that seed of entrepreneurialism burst out in me. And we did, we, we took over a small solicitor's practice. We, you know, built it up for a couple of years. I looked at it at the time as, as like, this will be kind of a fun adventure. There were still those other seeds of academics and other stuff inside of me, but I saw it kind of as a, here's an opportunity to learn. 
here's an opportunity to do some interesting stuff. And it worked out well together. We were there together for about four years. And then I pivoted into academics. So kind of going back to the big firm, if you could get that New York or Toronto style of work in Calgary, do you think that would have prolonged your stay? Do you think you could have made a career out of that? Or do you think your other interests would have taken over? It's hard to say. So I, I, I like to say to students often that you need to allow a little bit of experimentation in your career. It's not just the domain of law that you do, but also how that is done. Because you take something like securities, well, securities is a lot more than just working at a big firm. You could work at the regulator, for example. Mm-hmm. You could be in-house being dealing with all kinds of securities matters, particularly you know, like a, a fintech firm getting sandbox relief or something like that. You could work as an academic. There's lots of different ways to do a particular domain in law. And I think that it takes a little bit of experimentation to really be able to figure that out. With me, I had these seeds of interest academically that were really sown when I was an undergraduate student. The seeds of interest in policy started to come out 2007 and eight, and I'm working right in this, and I'm watching the news every day long and reading this and seeing the response to this that comes out in 2009, 2010, Dodd-Frank in the US and the, the Canadian Justice it's like all of a sudden seeds of policy were kicking in for me that I think was really making the likelihood of me eventually heading into academics quite high. So to get to your question, if I was able to do that type of stuff, would I have probably stayed in big law longer? I don't know. I think that perhaps, but I think ultimately for me, the domain was clear for me of where I wanted to spend the rest of my life in, but the way that it was done, I think Ultimately, I think it would end up where I was, where I am now, which is the way that I participate in this area of law was more likely to be in the policy and academic space, inevitably, because there was seeds sown in that predated my engagement. I tell my students this all the time where it's more of a question of sorting. When we say fit about law firms, we're often kind of looking at it from, from more of a human resources or, or workplace culture perspective. I think that there's a different question around fit, which is, does the way that we do this type of law fit with you and what you value and who you are and all these other things? Because some people might go, and I experienced this, they, they might do a type of law like securities in one type of setting, like big law, and maybe not enjoy it that much. And then they get a job at the regulator or they publish a law paper and they're like, I really like this area of law. Well, the question is, there's a different way of participating in that type of law. And I think what you need to figure out is where you exactly fit in this gigantic legal ecosystem that exists. Because there's so many different things like from in-house to using your law skills entrepreneurially to running a boutique or a small firm to mid-size to big firm to policy to... SROs, the regulator, academics, like there's so many different things. And I mentioned this at the very beginning. I I think like we need to educate our students early on about this, to see their law degree as this fantastic Swiss army knife that can do a ton of different things and allow yourself a little bit of experimentation. Don't necessarily write off your law degree right away. Like open up that, that Swiss army knife and see what else can be done with this thing, even in the domains that, that you like. 
I couldn't agree more with that. And yeah. part of me does feel like you're letting big law off the hook a little bit <laughs> with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, for myself, at least, you know, good grades after first year, some business and some sports in the background, which some of the firms like, and I just did the shotgun approach, applied yeah. to all of them, yeah. got interviews at virtually all of them. And then, you know, I was shooting in the dark and yeah. you know, thankfully yeah. I was smart enough to go where my friends were, many of whom have joined <laughs> Good Lawyer now, but really law school felt like at the time, at least for me at U of A, and I think yeah. Matt can probably speak to the same, it felt like a funnel into yeah. big law. And yeah. if you didn't get the big law job, you failed. And yeah, everything else was secondary. I can't deny that there was social pressure for that, for sure. It's not exactly the same in the U.S., by the way. So oh. when you go to the U.S., some of the highest profile jobs are actually with the regulator or with the government. So a lot of the very top, so the Department of Justice, the SEC, it's not exactly the same. You see often, and, and I've had conversations with regulators about this, where it's seen it often in the U.S. as that's a place to go first, go to the SEC first, and then go to Wall Street, where often in Canada, it's seen the opposite, where go to big law first, and then when right. you decide you don't want to do big law, but you want to be involved in securities policy, then you come back to the regulator. This is just the honest truth for me. I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's fundamentally a question of fit, not fit in a workplace culture, like which of the seven sisters do you better fit into? <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about like, there's a fundamental, unique, authentic fit for everybody. And some of that will absolutely be in big law for some people. Right. The problem that I see is maybe the sorting mechanism, because Students like myself, who had very high grades, but I have all these seeds of potentially taking me elsewhere down the road. It doesn't seem like the sorting mechanism works well, because I end up with many job offers in big law and a high probability of leaving down the road. Right. You sure. see what I'm saying? Where perhaps other people who maybe are a better authentic fit for staying there for 35 years and yeah. being partner... I get the job over them. And you look at you and say, well, then people like you shouldn't take the job. Well, the problem is- You don't know. I don't know. And I want that job because that job, even if I'm there for a year or two, that's a great thing to have on your Open resume. That's door. one, that's a big challenge, this like sorting mechanism. To further your point, I, I can say I'm kind of exhibit A with exactly that, that you, you spoke about that funnel. I had no clue when I came into law school I remember the first career day, I wasn't going to go because it was Friday afternoon. And I didn't feel like it. Hey, you might want to go to this. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. and, and I ended up meeting someone there that eventually kind of turned into my job. And if I do give myself a pat on the back for anything, I, I give a great interview. And yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got more job offers than my grades probably deserve for big firms. But to your point, I was a terrible fit. I was gone before I even started. That was not a right spot for me, but I knew nothing else. It was the only option that seemed available at the time. What type of person is going to be successful? In I don't think it's that easily simplified because when you're in big law, you see that there's a range of personalities and, and a lot of it, there's a secondary fit question of when you're in big law, what is the type of law that you do within big law? Because there seems to be different personalities, you know, and I don't like to generalize even within subsectors, 
You know, I don't know if you can easily generalize that question. I think that for a lot of people, big law presents a fantastic life where you make great money. You think, well, is, is what's the risk profile of being there? Well, it's not the same necessarily as, you know, you look at entrepreneurialism, people like lever up completely and all or none and complete like audacious optimism that a lot of lawyers look at and think that's crazy. How, how could you <laughs> lever up so much on that idea? I think that there's people who aren't inclined that way. I think big law presents kind of a nice place where you can make a really good living within parameters that you can master eventually. Mm -hmm. Not initially, it takes some time, but once you master those parameters, you're like, I can do this and I'm good at this and I can make really good money. That's not a bad thing at all. I think that maybe the better question is not who fits into that. It's more like who doesn't fit into that. And that's the way that I look at it is like, well, who isn't likely to fit into that long-term or, or what are some of the things that would make you not likely to fit into that? Well, maybe someone who wants more autonomy over how they work and when they work or, or someone who, you know, they want to experiment with some things or they want to take some risks or they, and risk can mean a lot of different things. It could mean you know, starting a business, but it could also mean taking an opinion or, you know, publishing something like th mm. this is why this law is wrong or something like that's the, the kind of stuff you can't do real easily. So th there's a cost that comes with everything. And there's a cost that comes with big law too. And some of this autonomy that some people might value more, maybe uh, you're not able to have as much of it when you're in big law. But again, there's a trade-off because there's prestige and there's money yeah. and, and you can define it and you can master it and it, you know, and, and there can be really positive workplace cultures, but I, like everything constantly has trade-offs. It became pretty clear to me pretty quick that there was an autonomy factor for me that I yeah. wasn't going to be able to satisfy in big law and, and it would just eat at me. Yeah. And by the time, you know, I was my age now, it probably would have manifested negatively. Like I saw it early on. And because I saw it early on, I knew that I needed to pivot outside. I need to make sure that I hone my craft and increase my skill set and constantly learning, constantly improving, because that's, a, you know, it's kind of scary to leave that path right early on. But I knew for me that there was just, there was too many things I wanted to do. And I didn't want to have to go through everyone's approval all the time. Like I wanted to get involved in some startups and I wanted to serve on boards and I wanted to go do my master's and probably a doctorate. And I wanted to just do lots of stuff. And I felt like I, like it probably wasn't going to work for me. So I can absolutely relate with, with those feelings. That autonomy piece was really yeah. the key aspect of my decision mm -hmm. to leave was my inability to kind of pave my own way. You know, you're within the firm confines and they have a way that has worked for them and mm -hmm. they want you to abide by that way. And mm -hmm. deviation is not applauded. Yep. It is more often than not resented because people higher up the food chain did it this way and they yep. want to see you do it the same way. So I, I totally relate with that. And, and to be fair, a lot of people don't have that autonomy as a core value. Like a lot of people, and this is where I just come back to this idea of fit is like a lot of people are looking for 
I want to belong to this community and, and I'm comfortable here and I can do this work and I, I get paid well. And this is comfort for me. Even if I trade off with 60 hours a week or whatever I'm doing, that's okay because I don't value the autonomy enough to take the other terrifying side of autonomy, which is some of the marketing and the hustle and some of the other stuff you have to do, or the, even the uncertainty of what your career trajectory is. Because with me, when I left big law, I go into a small law setting, boutique setting with my friend, you know, even though I had these seeds of like maybe academics or what other things, there was no certainty for me. Even when I went back to school, even when I was teaching you, Matt, and I went Mm -hmm. to one of my mentors and I said, I think I really love teaching. And this mentor said, well, do you love writing? And he, and I said, I don't know. (laughs) You know, I I haven't done (laughs) enough of it to really know. He's like, well, that's what you need to find out. If you want to be an academic, you need to go try. And I I said, well, what does that mean? Well, you got to go back to school, do your LM, and then you got to go do a doctor too. And there might, you might not get a job. So, and you need to go to the US or the UK probably, you know, and and that's not cheap. You need to go to top school. So I'm looking at this going, okay, I got to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for the possibility of not even having a job (laughs) right? just to see if I like something. Yep. And then he said to me, are you going to be an old man sitting on your deck on a rocking chair, regretting that you didn't take the Mm. chance? And I go, probably probably I will regret this. He's like, then go to the U S and see what happens, you know? And you have to have that kind of a personality in lots of ways, or sorry, if you do have that type of personality, which is like, I'm just going to go for this one. (laughs) Like we're going to go, we're going to see what happens here. I think if you have that personality, those are the types of people that often leave big law. Yeah. I, I think big law is not a great setting for those types of like, let's just see what happens on this one. There is huh? an aspect of our chief legal, Josh, always, always likes to use this term asymmetric risk Yeah, where, yeah. you know, you can leave big law, mm. go down a different path, see yeah. how it goes. And you can always go back. Yeah. Guaranteed right now, every big firm in the country would be happy to bring Ryan Clements into the fold. Mm-hmm. Like that option yeah. hasn't exhausted itself. It, it hasn't. There is a dynamic, but I would also argue that dynamic is only there because I rolled the dice on Duke right. and I was willing to say, okay, I'm levering up on myself and I'm investing in myself. And even though I'm leaving big law, I'm going to keep increasing my skill set and I'm going to keep increasing my knowledge. See, what isn't necessarily true would be if I just left big law and I didn't continue to improve and I didn't continue to increase my knowledge. And I, I just made a hedge and just said, well, not even a hedge. I, it's, it's just, I'm making an intentional choice to go into small law. And there's nothing wrong with that for the people who do that. But if you want that asymmetrical dynamic, the ability to come back in, well, then you've got to get something that's attractive to big law. Because if I don't go to do can do my LM and then my doctorate and be involved in all these other things, then I don't really have much to be able to contribute. Like I have something that I can contribute that was earned after I left that. So to get back to this idea, like, okay, well, we need some experimentation in our careers in order to, to get some good fit and good authenticity. But there's also, and I got advice on this too, you know, about seven or eight years ago, If you keep experimenting with your career, you're never going to be really good at anything. 
And so yeah. at some point, you've also got to lever up on yourself and invest hard and say, like, this is the spot and I'm going to become an expert in this thing. Yeah. And I'm going to try to know more about this than anyone else. You know, whether or not that's true or not, I'm going to at least try. I think it's that side that really allows this asymmetrical payout potentially for you to go in and experiment and do the other things. You've got to also be the expert at some point, or at least drive an expertise in a way that makes people want to pay for your advice. And so there's a delicate balance, I think, with all of us as lawyers. How much experimentation do we give to try to figure out where are the settings? And at what point do we say, all right, I'm going heavy here. I'm, I'm really going to become super good at this. And, I, and I'm going to drive this one home. Because if you never do that at all, then I, I think you're missing out on some of the big potential opportunities and big potential payouts that you have yeah. too. Yeah. And I think your original point, which is mm. there is an abundance of opportunity yeah. for lawyers. Yeah. Oh, you've, yeah. Got, you've got a ticket to do a lot of yeah. things. You've learned a number of real key skill sets, even just like the work ethic of articling, yeah. learning how to think in a different way that you get out of first year law. I think two and three become a little redundant, but you yeah. are a very capable individual for the most part coming out of those experiences. And I would say that on average, not enough lawyers go on a bit of an adventure and, and dabble yeah. in a few different areas. I'd say the average doesn't do enough of that, which yeah. is why I lean so hard into that to push more lawyers to try out new stuff because big law can provide a great home for many, but I'd yeah. say that there's many more that are stuck and yeah. just don't know how to get out. Yeah. And Ryan, final thoughts. Cause yeah. I know you have some thoughts on this, but you have a a ton of other things we need to get to. <laughs> time is already running short here. So uh, yeah, but please, uh, your, your last comments on that. It's fun to see people and my own students who see it from that perspective of I'm developing a skill set and a knowledge base. And I just want to be clear here, though, because I truly believe this, even though I left big law early, I don't think it's wrong. Like certain people fit into the right mold of that and that's the best setting for them across the board. Other people, not so much. And I think it, a lot of it comes in how we talk about things as one L's and two L's and you know, mentorship cultural, opportunities, sure. cultural, mm -hmm. and kind of giving permission to students. I like to make sure that my students know that you don't have to go that route, but it's not bad either. There's a lot of benefits to it. But if you just find yourself super compelled to be an entrepreneur, here's how a law degree can help with that. Yeah. I, and I think it makes the profession really exciting and engaging to know that I tell my own daughter this all the time. You know, she's in the mindset of thinking about school, where do I go? And I just say, this is just a fantastically diverse career path to have a law degree. There's so many things that you can do with it. And and if you're the type of person who just wants a whole bunch of interesting and engaging opportunities, law is the way to go. For That's sure. amazing. So yeah. we're going to have to fast forward through a bunch of sure. interesting points in your career. But as mentioned, I think the first class that you did teach, I was a part of that. Was that your first class that you ever taught? 
was yeah, uh, first class. So yeah, what I would like to just get here is just your thoughts on law school, how it's structured. Because one of the things that was interesting to me is your class was the most practical class I took in my three years by a long shot. Like you yeah. had us writing shareholder agreements, you had us yep. like in negotiation exercises and actually hands-on. That to me seems to be lacking in general in law school and very litigation kind of focused. I'm just curious about your thoughts about how you see that. And now that you're a professor at UFC and just, yeah, your thoughts on if that is uh, problematic or if that's just the way it is or how, how that could be structured a little bit differently. So I think that we need to ensure that we have both in the law school experience. So to, to continue with what Brett had said about if I want to use my law degree to go work in entrepreneurialism or be an investment banker or be something like outside of the typical practicing law setting. Well, then some of these non-practical skill sets, so being able to navigate really complex materials Mm -hmm. and see exactly like you're having me read this 45 page case and there's a dissent and there's a concurrence and like, how can I synthesize that easily? Well, those skill sets are really important elsewhere, okay? The ability to speak clearly and with precision, the ability to be able to handle debate without getting emotional, these types of things are really important. Those are often learned in these 1L classes, Socratic classes, tort law, property law, contract law. So we don't want to undermine that stuff at all because those skills are super, super important. The practical side is also very important too. Students like the practical side because they come out of 1L and certain classes in 2L and they don't get hardly any of that. And that's okay because they need to have those skill sets. They take an upper level class where all of a sudden I'm, I'm like, okay, you're the lawyer now. It's fun, right? right? It's engaging. We need to have that. We need to keep interest in it. Now, there's certain types of practical applications that don't lend themselves well to law school. It's very hard to practically do a big IPO in securities, <laughs> okay? Right. It's practically hard to do a large M&A transaction that has 200 documents on the closing agenda. You can pull out one of those, and be like, okay, this is why we're doing this. So then the practical element lends itself more to small litigation files or pieces of a litigation file that are kind of pulled up out that we do it or to, you know, exempt market financing, startup law, stuff that you actually don't do a lot of in big law, to be honest with you. Right. And so, so again, I like this balance side. Now there's even another piece that I into integrate into FinTech and into securities. So you see things like the CSA's regulatory sandbox, where fintech firms can apply to a provincial securities regulator for potential exemptive relief across the CSA through the passport system to say, well, we should get an exemption from these. Well, often in the application process for these exemptive relief applications, you're having to argue policy and you're having to say why this is important and why there's a benefit and what the utility is and all these other things. So I 
actually integrate policy analysis into both fintech and securities. And I justify it on the basis of practicality, because I say, you're going to be soon in potentially in this world where you might be arguing policy to the regulator. I'm not just talking about if you go into policymaking by becoming a regulator and becoming a lawmaker or moving into that. I mean, like as a lawyer, you might be having to advocate on the basis of public policy. So that's an element that we need to integrate into it as well. So to answer your question, I really truly believe in the most diverse acquisition of skills in, in law school. So I think you should come through law school armed with the most robust and diverse skill set that includes these strong analytical and speaking and writing abilities, the ability to handle complex matters and large volume matters, having some exposure to actual practical things. So you have, you know, your defense, that helps your own intrinsic experience and the, the process of law school and an eye to policy because the law changes. And I tell this to my students all the time. Like you look at when I took securities law in 2005 to what it looks like now, like it's fundamentally changed. The rules changed all over the place. Well, I got to understand some of these policies because I might be involved in the advocating of the change of the law. So that I think that side is important. And hopefully you come out of law school with a good sense of all of that stuff. And then you can use it for a wide variety of applications. I can't wait till you join us at the summit and we can dig into the regulation <laughs> of lawyers because I've got a few bones to pick with the self-regulation and our yeah. poor approach to dealing with the massive access issue that I presume is sometimes baked into your policy arguments in the financial context as yep. well, providing yep. more access to people that are underserved. And One thing you didn't touch on there go ahead. Yeah. is the people aspect, yeah. the psychology, huh? the business tools that- yeah any business owner has to have if they're going to be successful. But mm. you have so many of these lawyers who don't get picked up by the big shops who are thrust yeah. into becoming entrepreneurs like it or not. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like law school really looks out for those folks all that often. To jump on that point, like I didn't yeah. learn how to incorporate a company until I left law school, which is pretty yeah. basic if you want to be a business lawyer. Yeah. Is that not a, a responsibility of law schools? Yeah, the, there's, there's absolutely a gap there that is a challenging gap. You could argue it's an access to justice issue too, because particularly on the very, the micro startup, so pre-seed funding kind of organization. So two people with an idea and they want to form a company and they need to set out some trademarks and they need to put a shareholder agreement together. Some of the lawyers who are accessible in terms of the fees that they're charging may not have specialty knowledge or may not have done a lot of these things or are using some type of a precedent that may or may not be well suited or might be integrating some type of a clause or a contractual dynamic into an early stage relationship that is going to need to be amended. And the process of trying to amend it might get problematic when other shareholders or stakeholders are integrated into it. And so then you see the rise of technology that is happening to fill that gap. And I think that we're in a bit of a debate and it'll be interesting to see where the policy wins take us because I'm okay for, you know, the idea of competition access to justice might lend itself to the non-traditional provision of legal services or legal services provided by non-lawyers in technology. That opens up a whole bunch of concerns and, and it, it's a nuanced policy debate about whether or not that should be done. But if you close it off, 
you have this gap and it's across all areas of law, but I saw it often when I was practicing in this area in a boutique, when I left the law and I would have entrepreneurs come to me and, and I would do a full scale analysis. And it was really hard because I would say, this is what you need. This is what it's going to cost even at a discounted rate. And then they would also often say, you know, like, do you want some stock? Can we give you some yeah. stock instead or something? And you're just like, ah, I don't know. Because then you got it tough choice to make as a lawyer. It's like, well, I'm making $40,000 a year and a bunch of stock on companies that <laughs> I'm not, never gonna have any liquidity on. Absolutely. Like how, but but I, would even, I would even bring it back to something just even simpler than that. And this was, mm-hmm. I think, probably one of the earliest insights I had about the profession and where Good Lawyer originated from. I ran a painting business before yeah. law school, ran it into first year law school, skip the one L thing. Cause I was out there with the guys making money to pay for law school. Yeah. And we learned how to estimate mm-hmm. and I learned how to estimate like a full house or a, a whole complex mm-hmm. over the course of a few days. Yeah. And I cannot tell you the number of conversations I've had with lawyers over the last three years while we've been building good lawyer and trying to get them to provide upfront fixed fee prices for their services yeah. far and away. The majority of them just don't know how to do it. Yeah. at all. And yeah. I remember even when I have sitting down with a classmate and this is very early good lawyer days. He, he was a litigator. I was like, what's the smallest service you offer? He's yeah. like, Oh, like maybe like a statement of claim. That's the smallest mm-hmm. one. And I'm like, okay, perfect. How much would you charge for a statement of claim? Oh, yeah. it depends. I could, I could, I'm like, well, if you had to guess, he's like, Oh, I can't guess. I'm like, would you do it for 500 bucks? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, you know, trying to teach lawyers just a few basic business fundamentals, whether they're corporate solicitors or whether they're litigators seems to me like something that is just wholly missing from a law school system that these like it or not entrepreneurs, as I mentioned earlier, just for a shameless plug for my employer here. We have, and you know, hat tip to Dean Holloway on this one. Like we actually have some of those classes here at UFC. Yeah. And so, you know, we have business skills classes and a marketing class and a, like we, we have classes designed on that. I think it's important to have a robust class slate. Now the challenge then becomes, well, you know, the 14 students who want to run their own firm, take that class. What about the students who want to go to big law they think they want to go to big law, but they end up in a setting where they're having to do estimates and have never taken that stuff. That's kind of the challenge. But yeah, some of that actually might be a technology solution where maybe lawyers aren't very good at this because they don't know how long things take, to be honest, where they don't know how to maintain profitability, they don't have clear analytics and metrics on capacity management. And like, what are some of the drawbacks? for big law using more fixed fee pricing, for example. Well, it's likely a kind of a microeconomic pricing issue that they just don't have the data exactly. They don't want to underprice themselves. And this might be areas where technology might be able to come in the future too. At, at the big law level, I think it mm-hmm. comes down to the broken partnership model, a serious aversion to change and just sheer laziness. I think at the small firm level, it's yeah. because you don't have a lot of core entrepreneurs like it sounds like you are. And I know certainly I am coming through law school because what kind of entrepreneur goes to school for seven years? Well, for me, Mm -hmm. it was one with a psychologist mother who always beat school into me pretty hard, (laughs) Um, but fundamentally 
they just don't know how to do it. And that's what we've done with good lawyers is taking that burden away. And it's been really interesting. We've had lawyers say, oh, I'm going to lose money at that rate. And I remind them, no, you're going to make $1,000 more than you would otherwise. Yeah. Because they have tons of extra capacity. That's where this whole problem we're yeah. targeting is facilitated by this mm-hmm. enormous amount of unused supply, which is mm-hmm. lawyers sitting mm-hmm. at their computers trying to figure out how to get more clients to bill hours to. One of the challenges too, particularly when people leave big law and go into boutique or small law or their own law firm or find themselves in pricing is that just because you're a good lawyer doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good marketer or a good manager or a good accountant. And you look at a business from a legal perspective and think, well, you know, you, you have those positions, you have these officers, but we don't seem to integrate that into the actual practice of law that much. And you're seeing it change, it's starting to change, but like professional managers and professional marketers, and I acknowledge that you are seeing firms starting to adopt this. It seems to be less so, and maybe it's an economics issue with the smaller mid-sized firms. But that was one of the things that I found for me, actually, that I've actually found a bit frustrating when I was in a small firm setting is I didn't love doing the marketing to be honest with you. Right. I, I would rather do law. I loved having some tech firm come to me and say, we want to do this <laughs> and we need this agreement. And I'm like, I've literally never heard of that. Okay, let's try to figure out how to do that. I love that stuff. But what I didn't like is I didn't like marketing. And then I would read like a book on marketing. So, well, you need to get on Google and search engine optimization. I'm like, how do I do that? Like, do I pay someone to do that? Yeah. You have all these things that, that have to be done in the business of running a law firm. And a lot of lawyers, I think, just, they try to take on that stuff, but that's not where their expertise is. They're not good at exactly. it, to be honest with you. And so being okay with actually pushing that stuff out easier is important, I think. Absolutely. Well, well Ryan, uh, we're already over time and I do want to be respectful. I know you're a very busy man. Sure. You got to all the half of what I wanted to chat with you. About. <laughs> That's my fault. Mostly. Know, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, we'll have to have you back on. Cause I think you'd have some really interesting insights in setting up your own firm and some of the ins and outs of that, as well as I'd love to hear a bit more about your research and obviously where the future of the legal profession is going. You're one of the few people who have seen it from pretty much every perspective you can as far as big law, small law, and then as a professor and and Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which we didn't even touch on. So -hmm. we'll have to get you on again there, but I I guess- can't help but just think of you as this amazing legal scientist. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate for the opportunity to chat with you guys. And I, and I love talking with innovators and disruptors. And I just get such an energy vibe from people, you know, who, and, and you see, even when you're around, like, like I, I do some board work and I'm involved in the fintech space quite a bit. And I see some of these entrepreneurs who just really put it all on the line, who like, bet the whole house. I actually love being around people like that. The I get excited on this one. Yeah, yeah. I, I get excitement around it. Like I, I just find there's a seriousness to our profession, which is important and which is needed. But there's an energy sometimes around these entrepreneurs that I just really enjoy. I like being around it. So yeah, well, you're always Thank welcome you at, our, at our HQ whenever you would like <laughs> to come November down. 3rd, yeah. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk uh, offline about that. Yeah. Okay, sounds I'm gonna good. We'll be talking to yeah. Holloway about sponsoring because <laughs> I think UFC is uh, really encouraging yeah. to hear. Yeah. They seem to be yeah. ahead of the game when it comes to really preparing their students for what the future yeah. of law and you know being a lawyer looks like and yeah. breaking tradition a little bit, which I think, again, it's super important. But as a profession, I think we overweight it. And it's yeah. time to take some fresh approaches and 
try to make things better for, for both sides, both the lawyers and the clients alike. Yeah. Thank you. As always, some excellent thoughts and insights. We really appreciate it. I think you laid out a framework on this podcast for a lot of law students to consider their next steps. So hopefully they take a lot away from that. And I mean this genuinely, that's a talk I wish I would have received when I was making my decisions, choosing which firm to go to and all of that. And you wouldn't be here, buddy. (laughs) You know what? And that's the thing is people ask me, it's like, would you go to law school? I'm like, well, it's an interesting question for me because I don't practice as a lawyer, but I'm like, yeah, you know, the things that came from it are tough to deny. So so, um, yeah, yeah, and you know, final thought is where you end up if it's authentic, even if that is includes big life. If it's authentic and if it resonates Agreed. for you, you're gonna you you just gotta get sorted in the place that you're kind of meant to be. And I think the worst case scenario is to be my age in your forties and not enjoying what you do every single day. Like you gotta totally. get to the place where you enjoy what you do every single day. Otherwise, what's the point, right? You only That's really live once. That's right. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. We'll be in touch soon. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you taking the time today. Okay. Great guys. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.